How are you today? How are you? Um, I- I'm doing well. Um, uh, <laughs> life is all over the place. I'm sure you know, but um, <laughs> I- I'm- <laughs> how are you? I'm I'm doing okay too. Again, life is most definitely all over the place, but you know, we manage. I'm so thank you so much for staying down with me today. Um, I um, I'm so truly grateful for this. Wow, um, I'm really glad you reached out to me. This is this is great. I'm I'm really excited. So. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad to hear. I'm so glad to hear that. So I don't know. I definitely wanted this to be more conversational. Yes. Just. 100%. So obviously our team knows you from TikTok. So I guess our my first question would be, when did you start posting? Were you doing, you know, content on other platforms before? Um, yeah. So yeah, um, so for TikTok, um, it's kind of a fun story. Um, I downloaded it last year and I wasn't really sure why, um, but everyone just told me like, yeah, you need to be on TikTok. But um, it was on my old phone, so it was a really crappy phone, so I really couldn't do very much on there until I got my new phone uh, a couple of months ago. And I'm like, okay, how do I want to use this platform? And one of my first, so I've had a few videos, like old videos that were just me playing around. But around the time of Black History Month, um, that's when I was like, okay, I want to I wanna use this platform for Black History Month do something, you know. And so my video for Andrew Foster, that was one of my first videos for Black History Month, it just blew up. And I was just like, okay, it looks like maybe I have something going here. And before that, um, so it's kind of all over the place. So during the pandemic um, last year, I was working for a bookstore in town and just running an anti-ableism book club. So I, um, and it was just kind of a little side project and then the pandemic hit like right around the same time. So unfortunately we couldn't have like in-person meetings and we couldn't do a lot of what we wanted to do. But that was really what got me into researching about like ableism and really building my, um, my knowledge about um, disability justice. And so really TikTok was just kind of like that open door that just allowed me to take all of my like my research, my art, and to just put it out there. And the just the reaction has been so great. And so yeah, that's kind of how I started. Um, before that, um, I was using my Instagram to basically promote my artwork. Um, but it's kind of hard as an artist um, anywhere because uh, it's, it's really hard to promote your work. And but my art does have a lot of like black death fantasy things, and so I uh, on my Instagram, and so now that's kind of blown up because of my TikTok. But um, up until then, I've really just been kind of a guy who would get on my Facebook and make these long like posts and rants, and um, yeah, and, you know, people love that. But it's Facebook, you know, it's kind of superficial, and I feel like what I'm doing now is definitely a lot more connected. It's amazing. It really, it really is amazing. One post that particularly stood out to me was about how Black disabled people are literally erased from history. And, and when you think about it, it's, it's so, it is so true because I, I took this one, um, I took this one intro to African-American studies course, um, Mm -hmm. a bit of, 
a while ago. And I remember never learning about Black disabled people. And I remember in your video, you talked about how even in the transatlantic slave trade, like not everyone on board was able-bodied. And that is so true. (laughs) It's crazy the fact, because it's the same thing. Like I also, um, when I was in college, that's when I really started to learn more about Black history because, you know, elementary school, high school, you know, you know, standardized education doesn't really care about Black history. But um, college, after I got through all of my general requirements, and then I could start taking classes I wanted to take that were of interest to me, I started taking like intro to African-American history and like African-American literature, and you really don't get any disabled, marginalized experience. And just with all of my research, um, one of my posts on TikTok was talking about erasure from Black history. And like, when you stop and think about slavery, when you stop and think about Black people not having access to medicine and like education and like not having these resources, and you stop and think about not only how they were physically abused, but psychologically, emotionally, how on earth are we not realizing that the majority of them probably were disabled? They probably were neurodivergent. And just us not making that connection, it just showed you how ableism is so like deliberately trying to like erase this from our consciousness. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it baffles me too. Like I was just kind of on that same path of like, wow, why don't we know about this? Like, you know, there were a lot of black people who were sick and they were still fighting for our civil rights. But we talk about those leaders and what they did, but we don't talk about the disabilities that they had. We don't talk about how they went home and their joints were hurting and they had inflammation. We don't talk about like lupus, MS, diabetes, like just all these things. And mm-hmm. it just it blows my mind. So I'm right there with you. Because so. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it, and I mean, you're obvious, you've obviously done extensive research on this. and I guess my question to you is like, what theories do you have as to why we don't learn about, even within the black community? Like, why do you think that when we talk about MLK and we talk about Malcolm X, why don't we hear about mm-hmm. the black disabled people at the forefront of these movements? Why do you, I, I don't know. I, have, I actually have several ideas as to why that is. I think, I think when you look at, okay, so when I take my experience as a Black person, and you know, and you know this too, Black people already know that we have to work 10 times harder than white people to get ahead and to combat the stereotypes and all of this stuff. And when you think about the history of the way that Black people have been oppressed, the way that Black men have been emasculated and how they in turn would come home and abuse their wives and children and take it out on them. When you think about the way that Black people, how they suffer when they interact with white people, when they go back to their communities, a lot of the internalized oppression get turned against the communities. And so when I think about disability justice and ableism, not only do I feel like the Black community for a long time, because we haven't had access to understanding the different conditions of the human body mind, because we know, because of the stigma of disability, I think a lot of Black people have internalized that ableism and have turned it against disabled Black people. Mm. I think, I think um, one of those, I'm going to show you some books that I read, but uh, one book, 
that I've read is called Blackness and Disability. Sorry, it's mm-hmm. backwards, but um, no, I can see it perfectly. Okay, okay. <laughs> but um, we talked about how um, because disability of itself is viewed as sort of a um, a condition, and when you don't have complete freedom or control of your body. I think that Black people have internalized that in the Black community. I think that we, in general, look at disability as um, sort of like having a broken body almost. Just like I'm not being able to understand, because we don't understand disability from a social perspective, and because the medical industrial complex has done a lot to really make disability look like something that has to be cured, that has to be... Mm. When you combine that with the intersections of race, you know, you really begin to see how we've internalized that disability means it's, it's undesirable. Um, there's something in that body that we don't, that um, too human, too, it reminds us of our mortality. And I think that we've learned to reject that. And so I think um, in Black communities, like I think about my experience, um, just being on the deaf spectrum, my family is not fluent in sign language. And, you know, I have a sister who's also like me, and I have one cousin who's deaf in one ear, and that's it, it's just the three of us. But we've always had to work hard to communicate with our families. It was expected, just like Black people have to work hard to assimilate and keep up with white people. It's weird that people who are deaf or who have disabilities are also expected to work harder just to keep up with other Black people. It's like, you know what I mean? And so it's like, um, it's crazy. And so like, we've normalized that we just have to keep working harder. And I feel like so the more marginalized you are, if you are Black, the more marginalized you are, it's just expected you just have to keep working harder. So right. if you are a Black, trans, disabled woman, you're, you're gonna have to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, it's, it's almost like just by being black, we already know that that's hard enough. Right. If you are queer, if you are a woman, if you are trans, if you are disabled, if you are elderly, if you whatever, there's just this expectation you just have to work harder. Exactly. And nobody really understands how to stop and accommodate each other. That was that was such a good point because you're looking at like aspiration versus accommodation. Like, do I have to keep? That is such a brilliant point. I never. (laughs) (laughs) No, this I you just you said so much knowledge. There's so much to unpack when you talked about the the medicine industrial complex. Yeah. That's a that's a huge, I didn't think about that. Could you, could you elaborate? All of these fields, the scientific community and like academics, the medical industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, that like all of it work together to systematically keep us where we are. But you look at it in terms of race, but it also works in terms of disability as well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, the way that black bodies have been described as defective by the scientific community. The way that, you know, just disability is seen as something that has to be cured by the medical community. These things allow them to not only continue to exploit, but like experiment on black disabled bodies. You know, like it's just like the reason why there's so much violence 
enacted against Black disabled bodies is because these institutions have pretty much said, it's okay, go for it, you know? And, um, and that, that's the big problem. And I think even in Black communities, we, we're allowing that to happen to other disabled people. Like that was one of my biggest frustrations with the Black Lives Matter movement um, when it blew up because um, queer women, Black women were the, the ones who were literally leading this organization and cis hetero Black men kind of, I feel like um, when, you, when you, okay, so when you look at the Black community, Sorry, I'm just like, no, oh. you are, you are, I, you are just <laughs> so much truth because I totally see what you are saying. When you look at the people who are put at the forefront of the movement, it is the cis, able-bodied, heterosexual men yep. and not the people who are most marginalized and most deeply yeah. affected by the ones issues. who are literally leading this organization, you know, the ones who need it the most. And then you have able-bodied hearing people who come in and take over the movement and it's like, and they're still black. And so it's like, you support them because you're black and you're of that community. But then it's like, well, but you're not supporting me completely. And that's always been my biggest mm. frustration, especially like, I live in the Midwest. Okay, I was born and raised in Lincoln, Nebraska. This is probably, there are not enough black people here that's already hard enough to not have a, a bigger black community. But then to realize that the disabled black community it's just so like we're everywhere, but we're, it's almost like we're invisible in plain sight. It's crazy. It's like when you think of like a big, think about a big Black Lives Matter rally, and to know that all these people, you probably have people who are deaf and hard of hearing, who have who are neurodivergent, who have diseases, who are all coming together, but the ones who are getting the most represented are the able-bodied people, and it just blows my mind. It's like, we're right here fighting with you and you guys are literally leaving us out of everything. You know, you're not, and it can be anything from like people not captioning their content. You know, mm-hmm. you get so many black creatives who, who are using social media and then they don't caption their content. You're leaving out all these black, deaf and hard of hearing people who need to be a part of this movement with you. You know what I mean? It's just, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. There's so much work that still needs to be done. 100%. When you said what literally gave me chills was when you said like, invisible, but in plain sight, like they yes. are ev- exactly like being everywhere, but nowhere at the exact same time. Yeah. I can't imagine how draining that must have, that's bit. I, I just can't imagine the toll that that's taken on you as I just. It's definitely, I always think about like, so, you know, when you step out the door, um, you're black, okay? The world sees you, you're black. Um, oh. When you're at home, when, you, when you're in your safe space, wherever, wherever your safe space is, we know that we can sort of just be who we are, you know, whether it's at home or if you're with your community, with your tribe, with your people. But when you go out into the world, you're black and you have to understand 24 seven, even if you're out and about just minding your business, you're still black, you have to be aware of the skin that you have, you have to be aware that you are visible, you are visibly black to everyone around you. Disability is invisible, you can't always see it. You know, some people, 
yeah, they're in wheelchairs or they have a walker and you can tell, okay, this person is disabled. But a lot of disabilities are invisible and you can't see it. It doesn't mean that it's still there. And so for me, I'm black and I'm deaf or hard of hearing. I leave the world and it's like, you don't know, but like, I, it's crazy. As a black man, I have to be aware of my surroundings, but I have to try not to look suspicious when I look around my surroundings. But as a deaf person, I need to look around to yeah. make sure that I am hearing everything. And at the same time, to try to not look suspicious, I'm not. Just like that, you know what I'm saying? Like that pressure, and it's like, it's crazy to just, um, knowing that because I don't hear everything, and because my blackness makes me a tiger, I'm living in a constant state of anxiety. Like, I'm always anxious no matter what, no matter where I go. It's just, I always have to stop and think about my survival. And, um, and I think that that's something that other black people, um, when they just focus on the skin color, it's like, but you realize that all these other things intersect with race. It's not just about, if you are able-bodied, if you are a straight black man who is able-bodied and you can hear fine and you, you know what, kudos to you, that's great, you have, but you still have privilege. I feel like you still have a responsibility to acknowledge that other black people in your community who don't have male privilege, who don't have cis-hat privilege, they still need your support, you know what I'm saying? And we're not, we're not, um, I think we're just now starting to have these conversations. We're just now starting to have these conversations. I, I have to agree with everything you just said. I think that um, even to say that Black men have privilege is definitely a very controversial thing to say, despite the fact that it's 100% true. It is. Exactly. We, I know that as a male or somebody who gets identified and as a male, I have privilege, absolutely. Like, regardless of how I view my gender, I know that I have male privilege. And that doesn't make me a bad person. It, you know, it, it, me having to be aware of how my privilege does affect others. It's me having to be aware of how I take up space. It's me having to be aware of how I am treated differently than a Black woman who is just capable as I am, or perhaps even more so. You know, it's like, there's nothing wrong Privilege is not saying that you're a bad person. Right. Unfortunately, the, the status quo is the way that it's set up. You don't have a choice. But privilege is saying that because you have power, you can use that power for good. You know what I'm saying? And unfortunately, I think a lot of people, especially in the Black community, feel like because we're Black, we don't have any privilege at all. That's not true. There's actually... Uh, uh, in the I black, I have, that's the word I was going for. Yes, I have <laughs> Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we need to talk about and have a conversation about. I, I agree. Where do you think, this is such a hard question to ask, but um, where do you think that conversation starts? Or who, or I guess my question is, because that's such a loaded question, like where do you think that conversation starts, especially when there are institutions at play, many, many institutions who are preying on your demise and on my demise as well but particularly your demise and other you know yeah. black people with disabilities and it's it's crazy because part of me wants to say that this is always how it's going to be that that level of change requires 
I don't even know, but it seems almost unattainable, but it needs to happen because whether or not um, Black able pe- able-bodied people want to acknowledge um, the fact that ableism affects their lives, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like whether or not that conversation is had, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but <laughs> I'm sorry. You just, you, I don't know. You asked, like, um, where do we even begin to start? Honestly, I think a great place to start, um, I hate to say this, but I feel like when it comes to getting people to think differently, you kind of have to find something that affects everyone and to start from there and to sort of break it down. I think, okay, here's what I've learned. So from using my TikTok and just like making my videos and talking about like monoculture and all these things and drawing these diagrams and charts and stuff and really seeing that people are really responding to that, I have a theory. I think that our education system, the way that it's set up, it is designed so that people don't process information well. I think that having, at least for me, high school, going to eight classes, every eight different classes every single day and having to sort of like compartmentalize, it, it didn't help. And <laughs> not seeing how these subjects are connected didn't help. And also just reading words and listening to somebody just talking to you, it's hard for people to digest that information. But when people can see pictures, when people, when you draw images, when you make connections, a lot of people are actually visual learners. If we literally just change how we're educating people, you know, like, all I'm doing with my TikTok videos is I'm picking up pieces of paper, I'm drawing stuff, I'm just, you know, connecting things, and so many people are like, wow, you literally <laughs> explained this in 60 seconds in a way that I couldn't get through a semester in college. There's a reason for that. It's because mm-hmm. the way the standardized education system is set up is so that you're only focused on one subject at a time. So you're not able to, not only the part of your brain that needs to make connections, that's not getting developed. You're, so they're teaching you how to look at one thing at yep. They are, that's how, so that by the time you graduate and you go into working society, that it's literally a whole process. We have to change the way we educate people. We have to allow people to see things visually. We need to, um, art and literature has to be incorporated with history and social studies. Absolutely, 100%. Because who are the people who are representing themselves? The artists. Who are the people who are sharing their experiences? The writers, the philosophers, the poets, the painters, all those people who don't have a degree because, hello, the system says in order to get a degree, you have to follow the standardized education and then boom, you're not, you're not able to connect anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like we have to realize that we need to dismantle everything. Like people like you and me who are just doing the work, who are having these interviews, who are having these conversations, we're going to educate people more than the professors who have been tenured teaching at this university for 50 years. Like, of course, you know what I'm saying? Like, so- Of course. Yeah, so like how, how do we talk about how ableism affects the black community? It starts with people like you and I. It just starts with us drawing on a piece of paper and going, hey, this represents the supremacy this represents the working class. Do you see what's going on here? And then people are like, whoa, yes, <laughs> because you literally just drew it on a piece of paper. 
Um, I think at least that's my answer. I know that I want to do my art to help people make this connection. I know that that's what, um, that's what my artwork is for. Um, that's what my teaching is for. Um, and I think that, that, that is a start. We have to look at how, um, yeah, that is my biggest problem with education because I always get people telling me, used to be a teacher, used to be a teacher. I'm like, well, I already am a teacher. I just don't have, you know, a degree. I don't have, I'm not going to teach you the way that they want me to teach you because then you're not going to learn. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and so it just, it starts with that. It starts with us doing things differently, you know, because it's not working. Right. I even get on TikTok Everybody's talking about the same thing. You know what I mean? We're all talking about the same topic. But when every single person is just looking at the camera, talking to you, you're not going to learn. That's why my videos are different. You know, that's why I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be just talking to the camera. I want these people to see that I'm reading these books. I'm drawing it out for you. And then they can, it changes your mind. You know, you need to see things done differently in order to think differently. Amen. That was such an incredibly beautiful sentiment, especially when we think about how um, the education system is rooted in capitalism and is rooted to make people be robots, essentially. 100%. (laughs) Like, I noticed that at a very young age, and I was just like this, huh. You know, like, I call it the... um, (laughs) I like to make um, comparisons. Like, when you look outside at traffic, and you see like all the cars moving down the street, you know, all flowing in the same direction. I think about like the conveyor belt, like factory lines. And I just think about like how much of our society is set up like that. Education, the school to prison pipeline, even oh. just traffic. It is all designed to direct us, to keep us moving in one direction, which is feeding capitalism. You know? Of it's no it's crazy we teach people to be workers instead of thinkers and that is when you it's crazy it's yeah i'm gonna write that down workers instead of thinkers (laughs) i it's it's honestly it's insane (laughs) so (laughs) It's more, it's more so like, I would say it's almost sad even when you realize, um, or when people realize that this is what they spent their entire life doing, just in and out of what you said, like you're going to classes and it's just eight different things that make no sense when they actually, you know what I mean? When they're set apart, you think, okay, if I go to math, then I have to be a mathematician. If I go to science, I have to be a scientist, but you don't really see like we completely reject the the arts. We reject the things that actually complement life and show what life is. And so when we go to history class and we don't learn about black disabled people, we normalize that and we say, yeah. okay. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's like it's teaching us how to edit things out. It's teaching us how to, it's basically sharpening our perspective so that we only look, that's what monoculture literally is. It's basically honing us so that we only look, we have filters for very specific things and everything else, we don't even see it. And that's why so many people are like, for my existence, to be a queer, black, deaf person living in Lincoln, Nebraska, when there's literally not 
I don't even know if I know anybody else like me here, but um, I know there's gotta be other people. But like, so many white people, I'm literally the first diverse from they've ever had. You know, and just that like responsibility alone is just kind of like, mm. you know what I mean? It's just so like, it's depressing almost because like, they don't even realize that black deaf people exist. They don't even realize, like, think about how at some point in our history, we've had to really, like, now we talk about LGBTQIA issues, like, it's very common. We know that gay people exist. But at some point, we had to really get people to understand, hey, gay Black people exist, too. You know, people are like, ah! You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we always have to, like, normalize things, and it's just so crazy because what monoculture does that literally construct a lens so that we think that able-bodied cis hetero people are the normative and that everyone else is just kind of like this rare occurrence. But the actuality is the majority is actually the minority and that minorities are actually the majority. Of course. And I think that's what people don't get. And I think that's what's really going to help them if we say, hey, able-bodied white hetero people are like literally about this much of them. Everyone else, there's a lot of us already. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, what monoculture does is it, it gives you the perspective so that you don't see all of this, you only see that. Of course, it's terrible. And just off of what you were talking about, when we're given that, um, that closed-minded view, when we actually see, when we actually come into contact with people who are of the LGBTQ community or who are non-white, we don't know how to communicate with them. We get mad when they don't speak the languages that we speak. We get mad when they don't think the same way that we think. That's why we say things like use common sense, which is actually a pretty harmful statement to make because not everyone, not everyone thinks the same. Not everyone was in the not only the privilege that you are, people think in different languages, people's bodies work differently. And we as humans have such a hard time understanding that. We have such a hard time digesting that. I think that's why sometimes when we see disabled people, it makes us a little uncomfortable. And I would say that there is nothing wrong with feeling a little bit of discomfort or uncomfort with something that you're just not familiar with. That is completely normal. That is fine. It is not your fault if you have not been exposed. The problem is if you allow that to dictate, if that becomes a negative, you know what I'm saying? If you, if you yep. allow that being uncomfortable to become an ism or a way that you discriminate, then that's the problem. But if you allow that, but if you sit in that discomfort, you know, you're like, okay, you know, I, I, I feel uncomfortable, but here's the thing that you gotta, you gotta understand. Marginalized people already know that everybody else is uncomfortable with us. They already, you know, people like disabled people already know. There's no way that you can be more uncomfortable than that person, period. That's what I'm gonna say. Like no matter how no matter what you're confronted with, that person has already been through more than you can imagine. So while you're uncomfortable for five minutes, they're uncomfortable their entire life. You know what I mean? And so we, like I said, it's okay to be uncomfortable, but work through that, you know, do the work and understand that that means that you just haven't, you just haven't done the work yet and you just gotta do the work. And then there's a way to get over that and you're like, okay, I don't feel as, you know, bothered anymore. 
And I right. think people, they just kind of, they get stuck on that. This person can't talk, they use sign language. I don't know sign language. That makes me uncomfortable. I'm gonna use that as a barrier and not do the work. Um, and I think that's the problem. We just, we, we let that be a barrier instead of breaking down those barriers. I I got chills when you said that person has probably been uncomfortable for their entire life because society just doesn't see it that way. Society views them as the problem. Yeah, you're not uncomfortable. You're you're interrupting the way that things are here by coming in here with a wheelchair and we don't know how to accommodate you and you're you're causing a problem and and we even get angry about it. And that's what really baffles me when people get angry and they get like, they they almost want you to throw in a penalty. It's like they want to say, how dare you come into our space? How dare you need to be accommodated? You know, how dare you make us need to learn another language? How, how dare you? And it's like, so you really just want to, you, y'all are really comfortable just having things be the way they are. I'm just like, okay, I mean, if that's what you want, cool, but like, I mean, it's not cool, but. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, and then when you think about how we're all ingrained to, especially by the medical, like the medicine industrial complex, especially mm-hmm. by them, because even when you think about, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but even when you think about how a majority of, um, I think it's like 67% of aborted babies have, are the one, are, I think 67% of aborted babies have Down syndrome, or I might be saying that. Yeah. that yeah. Um, oh, okay. I don't I'm know if that's. Right. And when you think about how people tell people tell women that like they put the burden on women instead of putting the burden on these institutions that won't be able to accommodate these children. Yep. Uh, disability screening is one of the ways that the medical industrial complex tries to get rid of disabled people or try to prevent the existence of disabled people. And just, um, and that's why the topic of abortion, and I feel like they even use that, just knowing that abortion is such a strong, controversial topic, but it's crazy how, um, first of all, abortion is really just up to whoever wants to have the abortion. Of course. But in our society, you have this one side that wants to argue that it's wrong, but then you also, because of ableism, there's been a lot of justifications for abortion when it comes to preventing the birth of disabled people. And that's just one of the things what we also have to talk about in our society because it is put forth by the medical industrial complex. And like, my mom even told me that she, because um, I was talking to her, I'm like, did you have us like screen to like the only reason why was because she wanted to be prepared so that right. if she was gonna have a child with disability, she wanted to know, okay, what do I need to do? And I, and I think that that's a big difference between Black women and white women, to be honest. I think more Black women are more willing to... I, I've noticed in the cultures um, of disability, I do feel like Black women are more likely to want or to try to, you know, accommodate for their children. Um, but I feel like in white culture, it is a bit different. Um, I definitely see why, especially when we look at the intersection, when we, when we look at... Um, just being marginalized in and of itself yeah. and how whiteness is oftentimes ascribed to 
just automatically ascribe to being able-bodied when you think it's like white ascribed to superiority so I can definitely see why that would be more pervasive in white culture as opposed to in black culture Um, I like that point you that's definitely right because whiteness really is kind of um very closely connected to able-bodiedness but I think it's also around black people might have a lot of internalized um, ableism. I think that's also why a lot of Black people do are ableist because able-bodiedness has been equated to whiteness, which is also equated to purity. Superior. Mm. So part of Black people trying to overcome that is thinking that they have to obtain the able-bodied status. Um, and so that status has sort of become a way to create more hierarchy and divisions within the Black community. Absolutely. And it's because we've, we've um, internalized not only these, these, these white values, we've internalized the white idea of not only whiteness, but also able-bodiedness. Um, because I think that um, when you look at capitalism, when you look at, West, when you look at colonization, when you look at white supremacy, Ableism is very much entwined with that. And Blackness, to be honest, when I think of like just Black culture and Black people, I don't think that able-bodiedness needs to be representational about at all. We just have different bodies. You know what I'm like, There's a diversity of body minds in Black people. And it's just crazy to me that more Black people are not more in line with that kind of thinking. You know what I mean? Especially when we say we're not a monolith and people keep trying to talk about how blackness is diverse. Why are we still having a hard time with disabilities? You know, why are we still striving for the able-bodiedness? And not only that, like just think about how black children just like needing to compete in education, needing to um, compete, it's also very much in line with everybodyness, I feel like. And so I think we put a lot of that pressure on ourselves as well. Yes, I agree, especially with regards to Black elites who are constantly, I mean, just what you said right now, constantly trying to mimic white culture because, and I wonder if it's, more so for survival even but then right but then there's also that fine line between survival and you have to look at do the ends really justify the means if you're letting an entire subpopulation wither up and die in your own individual pursuit of success you know there's a fine line between survival and the way we just turn our backs on our black disabled folks it's terrible it really is you're right, and I think that survival comes down to what is your definition of survival. Are you trying to survive as a capitalist, or are you trying to survive as a socialist? You know what I mean? Like, are you trying to survive this? Because even the term survival can, can sometimes have capitalist meaning. Like, the the one percent, the the they're surviving off of the labor and the profit off of the working class. You know, but they. But in their mind, um, when you look at the system of capitalism, survival is basically like the top dog. You know what I mean? Like even our, our idea of survival and competition, especially in America, and just how that has spread globally, 
survival competition getting ahead. It was so internalized in us. And so I think it's always gonna come at, a, um, at the expense of some other group. As long as survival is rooted in capitalist um, ideas. As long as survival means I need to be on top, then I've, somebody's gonna be on the bottom. You know what I mean? It's inevitable. Yep. Survival is not community oriented. If it's very like representational oriented, if it's very self-oriented, then of course that's gonna happen. You know what I mean? And right. it's really comes with us needing to look at survival in terms of I want my I want the community to survive. You know, I want the black community to to thrive. Um, that's where it comes from. We have to change that line of thinking. One hundred percent. I have an interesting question. Do you yeah. think that because since there's definitely a lot of ableism within yeah. the white community, do you think that they need to come to terms with their own? Um, ableist sentiments for black people to, for black disabled people to get ahead? Like, if if that makes any sense, like, or do you think that, I guess my, I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm saying this right, <laughs> but, but like, hmm, or do you, I'm, I'm just gonna stop. <laughs> no, 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 um, um, like, if ableism is addressed more in white communities, but how would it impact how ableism works in black communities? Yeah, yeah. But to be honest, I just feel like so much of white culture and white supremacy is rooted against that. I just feel like, I feel like black people, black communities, people of color, would have an easier time dismantling ableism in our own communities than we would in white communities. And the reason for that is because, at least in my mind, when I picture it, when I see like capitalism and like Western imperialization, I see that up here. And when I see white supremacy as really being sort of like the driving force behind that, I, I, I see ableism, whiteness, able-bodiedness, capitalism, expansion, colonization are so closely entwined that I think if white people had to dismantle that, it would literally, number one, not only is it just like super strong, but like for them to dismantle it might be the collapse of society in some way. But for us and our own individual communities, um, I think it would be a different effect. I think because we are not I think because of the way that Western expansion works for white people, it's such a global thing. And if they were to even begin to try to break it down, not only would it be such a long, tedious process, I almost feel like, feel like it's almost kind of impossible because of what they've put in place for so long. Right. But for Black people who have been moved, who have been in displaced people, who have been moved around from Africa here and there, who haven't really had, we don't really have a supremacy. We don't have like the giant empire that's trying to like take over the world. There's less work for us to do in our communities. I feel like, I feel like we would actually have an easier time unpacking it because it's like, it's all right here. We just have to unpack it. Whiteness can't be, in order for whiteness to survive, it can't be unpacked. That's the way that their whole thing works. In order for, Capitalism, 
Western imperialization expansion to keep going, it can't be unpacked. They know this. If they unpack it, the whole society collapses. Because we don't really have anything put in place that really, um, that's really the foundation of our society because we don't have a black supremacy that goes back hundreds of years because we don't have laws written in our favor because we don't have any of that. It's actually gonna be a lot easier for us um, because first of all, we already have to deal with racism. We're, all, we're already doing the work of having to dismantle all these things and having to survive these things. So mm -hmm. no, I think it really just, um, Wow, that was kind of a loaded question. I do feel like I kind of went off. No, that was what you said about <coughs> no, that what you said about how um, like black people have already been putting the work since the yeah. dawn of Western expansion. And when you said about what you said before about how since like black bodies are already so diverse, why not? Why are we so hell bent on? you know, on marginalizing Black disabled people when we could just include them in our fight for liberation. Absolutely. It's like, I feel like, and I hate saying it because I know this isn't true, but like, I know that there are kinds of white people, but because monoculture and whiteness have been so closely aligned, monoculture literally means one culture, one way of life, one way, one language, one way of doing things. White culture has always been about monoculture. They've never really been about diversity. And so that's why I think it's gonna be harder for them to dismantle that because black people, we've always had diversity. We've always had diverse. And I'm not saying that white people haven't had, they don't have diversity, they do, but like, we don't have monoculture ideas in black community. You know what I mean? Like we're not, like, you get what I'm kind of getting at? It's like, yeah. we're, not, we're not united by monoculture in the same way that I feel like white people are. Exactly. And when we look at um, white institutions that are, what you said, like centuries old, Black people don't necessarily have that big right. of a hold. So we have the power to create entirely new systems. Yeah. We're always having to, I'm part of being Black, I'm part of being disabled, means that we always have to adapt. We always have to, you know what I'm saying? Like we're always having to improvise. We're always having to keep moving. So that's why I think we actually can do this because we already know, you know, like black women already know how they have to speak around men in general. Like they have to completely change. And like, you, we know how to code switch. We yes. know how to go into different places and to function differently, like our, even just the way that our brains work, we have so many different neural pathways and tabs open just to manage being black. I feel like white people have not, because of that monoculture, they don't, they don't have that same diversity, you know what I mean? And so I think that's why there's a big difference between ableism and white culture and ableism and black culture, that I think we can actually dismantle it a hell of a lot easier than in white culture. <clears throat> that actually has already changed the way I'm already seeing things because usually what I've kind of thought was even when we look at, uh, I don't know, it's like sexism or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then we look at how the way white women were treated in mm -hmm. be like before the civil war 
And then we say, okay, well, what did we expect for Black women? Like if white men weren't going to give white women what they deserve, how could we have expected that Black men were going to give white women what they deserved? But at the end of the day, it's we have so much more power with regards to how we treat our marginalized subpopulations because we are marginalized. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That's literally it. And because we don't have the same power structures in place, because we don't have this, you know what I mean? We don't have this big empire that makes sure that every Black person is working in accordance. It's like, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like when I look at white supremacy, I see it like a big machine. And it's like making sure that everyone, like white people are all doing what they're supposed to do. Black people, don't, we don't have that. You know what I mean? Like slavery was kind of used to try to dictate our existence, but like we don't have like, <clears throat> we don't have a supremacy that we're to maintain to make sure that we are all one big monolith, one monoculture people. We don't have that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you got black people in America, people in Africa, people, you know, in Spain, Black people in Japan who are all living these different lives. And when you stop to think about how they have to adapt to racism in all of those places, to how they have to adapt intersectionally on every single continent on the globe, we are capable of diversity and alternative ways that we can do anything. You know what I mean? But monoculture, kind of ensures that white people, no matter what continent they're on, they are kind of function the same. If that kind of makes sense, it's like racism makes sure that white people kind of have privilege no matter where they go. That's why racism in America, racism in South America, you go overseas, it works the same. Because it's all part of the same global infrastructure. Yeah, black people have to adapt to it no matter where we go. So therefore, we already have the tools and the resources to adapt and to dismantle and to change the way that we think. Like, it's already in us. We just have to do the work. Exactly. I have a, this is more of a question about you. And also, thank you. I just have to, just all of the knowledge. You're already changing the world. <laughs> I see things. And I really just have to thank you again for sitting down with me today because... Yeah. I love convers. I don't get conversations like these enough. So like, I have all this, these thoughts, and like nobody like <laughs> wants to really hear it. And so it's just like okay. So, thank you. <laughs> or you know, people are like, can you talk about something happier? And I'm like, but this is what I'm passionate about, you know. So I thank you for allowing me to talk about this. But yeah. <laughs> Back to your question. <laughs> I I was wondering when you started this deep dive into um ableism. Like when did you initially start? Because I mean, obviously it's all you've lived through it for right. your so when did you start to say, I don't know, my I guess my question is like when did you start to really research into it as like an academic subject or something like that? Like when did you really like do research and stuff? Honestly, I would just say within the past couple of years. Um, well, okay, let me back up. So when I was in college, um, I graduated from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2013. And when I was in college, I was an ethnic, I was an English major 
and I modeled an art and ethnic studies. But at the time, I don't feel like um, it was really represent. School just did not give me what I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it really didn't. And I just, um, I think also part of it was just the location being here in Nebraska. I just think uh, Nebraska has never been the place for me. But even just like at the time, there really wasn't a lot for me to be interested in. And so when I think about like ableism, that wasn't even a term that would have occurred to me 10 years ago. I'm not sure if I, when I even heard the term ableism. But, um, and just my, my journey as somebody on the deaf spectrum, you know, I spent the majority of my life rejected that. You know, I had a lot of, I had a lot of internalized um, autism and ableism. Like I had a lot of problems adapting the fact that I couldn't hear like other people, that I don't hear like other people. And I've struggled a lot with um, all of that. And so I rejected that a lot of my life. And a lot of my, um, internalization as a black person was that if I wanted to succeed and get ahead, I had to try to be like a human person. I had to try my hardest, you know, to make sure that I talk like everybody else and that I can fit in like everybody else. And so I internalized a lot of that for the majority of my life. And then not having representation, not seeing other black deaf artists and creators, I didn't even think they existed. And so I think, but when the past I've always been interested in research. I just never knew what I wanted to research. And so in the past couple of years, um, when I got my, um, when I co-hosted my anti-ableism book club, um, that was really when I started kind of really getting into like this deep dive. Um, Even before that, I've always been interested in like researching about like racism and race relations and policing in America and stuff like that. But it was always just kind of like light reading that I would do on the side. I would take notes and, because you know, you think, here's the problem. People have lots of interests, people have lots of passions, but the way that capitalism society Mm -hmm. is like, if you can't make a profit off of it, there's no point. Or, you know, you have to go to school for that. I'm just now realizing, one, I don't have to go to school to learn. And two, I can, what I want to do with my life, the reason why I didn't know back then was because I have to design it for myself. I'm kind of figuring it out as I go. And so this has all just been a process of me going, okay, what can I do with my knowledge? And what do, what do I want to learn about? And so really within the past couple of years has been me just realizing that I have the freedom to research whatever I want. I, I love to write. I take notes all the time. I still have every single notebook from college in a box somewhere. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I keep all of my notes. So I've just always been very passionate about learning and about information. I like, I like knowing that. That's amazing. What would you say to people who are, who this exactly what you said, who have these interests? And again, I, it's crazy because capitalism views our interests as just interests, but you are so knowledgeable. I don't know if I use that word correctly, but you know so much about this that it is crazy. Like you truly are a scholar. And it's crazy that capitalism will look at that and say, Oh, it's just, there's just interests. It's just, and we need to have 
structures where our scholars, our artists can make a living wage. They can be able to just thrive because dismantling white supremacy is not easy and it's not cheap either. So we need to, as a community, just more specifically as the black community, we need to stop with the aspirational politics with the, oh, you need, with the, you know, I need to go into STEM or whatever the the more lucrative fields are. And we need to create fields for, um, for our artists, for our scholars so that, because the end game, it's crazy because black elites believe that aspirational politics and trying to mimic white capitalists is what will, is what will truly bring about black liberation. Mm-hmm. But how are you dismantling white supremacy in that when you are just mimicking white supremacy? You can't do that. You simply cannot do that. So we need to back up our artists. We need to back up our scholars. And uh, it's crazy. And then it's what, what's actually crazy is that capitalists will think about what we're saying even right now, and then they'll call us radical or you know, and just we try to get shadow banned if you have a social media account and they try to like up, yeah, absolutely like just there's so much power in these conversations that we're having and just thinking about if this type of communication is available for other people to just absorb, you can change so many minds. And I think the way that the system is set up, it's like no 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 no. You have to um you have to go to school. You have to be recognized by some institution in order to be certified, in order to be qualified, in order to be taken seriously. And that's why we're losing out on so many people who, like myself, who are like, I'm just reading all these books and putting all this stuff together and I'm presenting it to people in my own way. And because it's my way, it goes against the status quo. Because it's not within alignment to how everything is set up. And that's just that's the problem with us as people, I feel like, because we've given so much power to these institutions and these authority figures to dictate what our understanding of everything is. And we have to reclaim that, you know, we have to reclaim our power in that. We have, and I agree with you, we have to support our artists and scholars. Like, I wanna, I wanna make a living off of it, you know what I'm saying? Like I currently work two jobs and even like last year I was working three jobs and just like mm-hmm. thinking about my passion and how much I would rather be researching and like doing art and how I could be making a huge difference. And I feel like that's kind of the point. Yeah. Like that's kind of why once you realize this, you're gonna be like, oh wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like once you kind of like everything I'm saying now, it's like I feel like ah, you know what I'm like, so like, oh, so why don't you t- oh yeah, capitalism? Oh, so how come you just oh yeah, racism? You know what I mean? It's like, yep, this is literally <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yes. we have to talk about these things because then people are gonna be like, oh man, this is a problem for everybody, isn't it? It honestly is a work in progress and having these conversations, that's how you mobilize support. And yeah. I truly believe that, you know, the marginalized, those are the people who are going to get us liberation. Yeah. And even um, what, like in your own research, what do you think is the most 
striking thing that you've learned? Wow. I think just realizing that all of this is not as complicated as we think it really is. And I think the most striking thing is how absolutely um, uncomplicated all of this actually is. What's striking to me is that we've created so many institutions and ideologies based on ideas. Um, what's striking to me is that, so when you think about systemic racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, and I think the most striking thing to me is all it takes is bias and discrimination and having these ideas solidified by medicine, government, law, and um, school, I would say like academics, you literally can shape an entire civilization just like that. I feel, I feel like the most striking thing is that all of our hierarchies and systems of power are literally built out of collective agreement. It's um, literally, it, it's literally that. I think that's the most striking thing. It's like, because when you stop and you go, why is this institution here? Because we all agree for it to be there. Why is this, you know, why is this, um, why is this law so, because we have accepted that that's the law. So therefore it must be the right thing to do. All it takes is for people to agree and then boom, it's put in the place. If enough people disagree and say, no, 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 wait a minute, no, then guess what? You take away that power. <laughs> and I think the most striking thing is that's literally it. Like we, it, um, we have to collectively agree and keep moving around that conveyor belt or keep moving around in that traffic in order for us to keep going. And um, I think that has been one of the most striking things is because we're not signing anything, we're not verbally saying yes, we're just as a society, as a group, subconsciously just agreeing yes, racism, has to be here, sexism has to be here, this is how the law works. Authority, this is the authority and I just have to listen to authority. Um, I've always struggled with my authority, my entire, with authority my entire life. Um, I've always been like, why do I have to listen to mm -hmm. And that's what makes you a rebel. That's why, when mm -hmm. people, that's why people single you out. I've always, you know, I've always been like, I've always called out my mom and dad. I've always, not to like, challenge them to be a brat, but it's just like, but, but you're being a hypocrite. Or you know what I mean? Like I've always wanted, I've always seen the contradiction. And that's the thing, like in life, I feel like we conform, we just do things because that's what we're taught. You know, we do things because that's what mom and dad did. We do things because that's what everybody else is doing. That's collective agreement. That's allowing these things to continue. And yeah, I think that would probably be one of the most striking things that I've um, encountered. Just the power that, of the human psyche to give power to all of these institutions. That's crazy. Um, when you said just your emphasis on the collective agreement and how 
we all feel the need to conform and it's so dangerous. And Mm -hmm. I do understand. Yeah, I do understand how some people think it's for survival, but in your, when you're surviving, not only are you hurting those around you, but you're losing yourself as the individual, you will never truly understand your purpose in life and who you are. And it's, that's, that's so dangerous. That is so dangerous. And conformity is what allows the machine to thrive. It's what allows the, the Western empire colonization. It needs people to conform. It needs to have a monoculture. It needs to have collective agreements. It needs to have societies where people are not gonna question, they're not gonna go up against it. And that's what allows us to thrive. It, it's really in our being complacent. It's really when we don't want when we don't take a stand, when we don't amplify the voices of marginalized people, you know, especially disabled people, um, because disabled people are the largest minority group all across the globe. And not only that, anybody can have a disability like that, anything. And all of us are going to end up disabled. We're going to get old. We're going to get sick. We're going to break our body parts. We're going to, our minds are going to slowly decay. Like it is a natural disability. is not like some thing that just happened to you. It's actually part of how the human body functions. You know, mm-hmm. our bodies are meant to get sick. Our bodies are meant to be flawed. Our bodies are meant to break. That's we're human. You know what I mean? And it's crazy how monoculture and the idea of able-bodiedness has taken us outside of our bodies. It's taken us outside of being physical. And that's why these institutions have so much power. We're literally not even inside our bodies. We're thinking like we're part of this machine. And mm-hmm. like you said, conformity, it has to keep that in place. When you step outside of that, you're stepping outside of the machine. You're, you're, you're breaking your... You know, the machine's going like this, and when you go, wait a minute, you're, you're breaking, you're like grinding things. You're making them have to stop until they no longer get rid of you. Or you have to try to get enough people to say, hey, look, this isn't right. And then the machine breaks and it collapses. So Exactly. <laughs> when you were talking about how almost like, um, how disability how we're all in, at some point in our lives how that's going to be you know our fate even when we think about covid and how black people are three times more likely to get it and when we look at how elderly people are so much more prone to have it and how people with who are comprom- immunocompromised are so much more likely to get it and then when we conflate that with race and then we see how our black people who don't have the means to are black people who are not able-bodied and black people who do have these um, diseases before COVID and black people who are older and who don't have the, you know, um, the right, I don't wanna say the right body parts, but like who don't have like <laughs> fresh lungs and everything like that. And we look at how they're dying at a, at a higher rate than everyone else. And we yeah. see how that it's, it's all around us yeah. and I think about my family, it's crazy that we try to separate disability from everything because like my grandmother had lupus. Um, In my family, we have lupus, MS, diabetes, um, addiction, um, neurodivergence, deafness, um, inflammation, things that go in your body and stuff, um, different types of diseases. That's all a 
part of disability. Like, it's not, and I think the problem is we say disability, like, oh, I said, no, it's just a different, it's a body that society does not accommodate. It's a body that society does not allow to thrive. That's what disability is about. And so, you know, you think about, it, it's very, disability is natural. It's just a way of life. And think about even people, um, I make this comparison because I think it's so important. Think about a time in your life when you got really, really sick and it was like the worst illness you've ever had. And when you get better, you're like, I never ever want to be that sick again. There are some people who don't have the luxury of getting better. There are some people who are literally sick every single day, chronically ill. But the problem is we look at the experience of being sick and we go, I hate being sick. I don't like that experience, I hate it. We see a person who is sick and somehow that hatred gets put on that person. And so it's almost like that sickness becomes representative of that person and so we don't want to see them. And that's why we don't want to see disabled people in our society. I think for some people it reminds us of being disabled, it reminds us of when we couldn't walk for six weeks because you had an accident. Well, you have somebody who can't walk at all, but psychologically, we want to remove that from our vision so we don't see it. We want to see perfect able bodies everywhere. We don't want to be reminded of our mortality. You know, we don't want to be reminded of helplessness. We don't want to see vulnerable people. It's almost like it makes us uncomfortable um, to see a body that's struggling, you know? And I don't know. I just. Um, that was such an interesting. I, I like how you're putting the emphasis on the human psyche and mm-hmm. what and how when you said that when we see disabled people it reminds us of our mortality and then when you conflate that with white supremacy and just white superiority how that simply does not match with mortality at all and that's where it is right there and that's why we keep striving for that like we I think it does connect to an innate fear of death or vulnerability. I think that that's something that isn't a conversation, but I do think that that is all connected. And so, yes, we've, in our minds, in our psychology, we've equated whiteness, able-bodiedness, superiority, almost immortality, you know, and like, and like never being sick, um, you know, straightness, whatever. And then here's reality. <laughs> <laughs> problem is like we're not living in reality we're not um we're not sitting inside of our bodies we're not we're not connecting with people who are just different you know what I mean we're just striving for we're doing this like I mentioned before we're, we're, we're constructing a lens and we're looking for that monoculture we're looking for that and that and that that's not going to be good for us Exactly. It's going to harm us. It really is going to harm us more in the future. And especially when we look at the role of like black elites and even black politicians, right? Like even when, you know, former president Obama, when he was put in office, that was it. That was enough for, um, for white people, for, for everyone to say, Mm -hmm. okay, racism is racism is over. Like we have our first black president, but Racism is only, 
like it's what you said with how everything exists at an intersection because we and right when we see a black male able-bodied person in office we say okay that's it but there are huge subpopulations who are suffering and that is where the conversation needs to begin yes and you know what you bringing up obama you're right because it was problematic because as an able-bodied lighter-skinned black man Uh, he literally like what i said like was kind of outside of reality a little bit i'm not saying that people like him don't exist obviously he does but the fact that he became representational of race being over but no longer being an issue just shows you how like the closer you are to the image of whiteness and able-bodiedness the more likely you are to be like so that was an image of liberation for the black community because he was so close to whiteness and that's not liberation at all you know what i mean but like but that's why he became a symbol and that's just been so problematic like in a lot of ways, the Obama presidency has opened up, you know, many doors and conversations, but in a lot of ways, it's also been very harmful towards the Black community. And it's just, you know, it's like, it's not going to be solved just like that. Exactly. Exactly. That was such a, that was such a beautiful point. I, when you, when you said how he got so close to whiteness, and then people believed that was equivalent to Black liberation, but here we are. In reality, in reality, that's the thing. Like, it's just whiteness doesn't represent reality, and it's because of the myth of whiteness. It's because of the idea that you know white people are the majority and that everywhere. That's also the reason why it's an illusion. There's, I mean, I don't, I don't believe that there are more white people than there are non-white people on this planet, um, but. Somehow, and I don't know if that's how white people have sort of maintained this myth because there aren't as many of them. Is that why they've been viewed as like, I don't know. I don't know where it all comes from, but it's, um, it's definitely a problem. And I don't think people realize that it's there, you know? I don't think. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. That's insane. Because I remember when Obama was in office just as you know, a little black girl being so excited. And even when you look at how other white politicians were reacting to it, like I remember Mitch, Senator Mitch McConnell. um, So I think it was June, 2019, the Senate, I don't know if, I can't remember if, I think it was the Supreme Court was voting on reparations and whether or not there there should be reparations given to um, black descendants of slavery. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said, that since no one was alive from slave times that 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 you know it wasn't on like that white people should not be responsible for it and then he defended that by saying that we already have a black president we've already had a black president and that is so crazy how just that one just him saying that is representative of how white people viewed Obama's presidency and mm-hmm. how it did, how it almost enabled Trump's presidency. And because we said, okay, Obama, Obama solved racism and we were given something, Trump, we were given Trump as a reminder that Obama was just, the, was barely the start. He was barely scratching the surface. 
Obama yeah. was the one that you bring out when the CEO is coming visit your job and you want to show, hey, look, you know, we have a black or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yes. You are white black and then we went to Trump. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, it's almost, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you though. But no, almost, no, no. It's almost like him being elected was just kind of a, a, pl- a ploy to get mm. some conversation to like, you know, to kind of get people's guard to go down, get to kind of like, it's, it's a game, you know, it's a game. You know, when you look at politics, when you look at all the stuff, it's no different than when somebody comes, like, okay, so the TikTok algorithm, you know, people are always talking about how like the algorithm works and how it's designed to like shadow ban different accounts and like, some people, they're not getting exposed at all because they're talking about like racism and stuff. I and mean, then other people who are talking about nothing have like 3 million followers. It's literally how politics and everything is working. Yeah. They're looking at the numbers. They're, they're looking at what people are talking about. They're going, okay, now we need to do something symbolic, something dramatic. Get everyone to start thinking like this. And then we can be doing some other shady shit over here. And, we're like, <laughs> and boom, like it's all. And I think... If we get people to see that, if we get people to see how it's just how everything like this plus this equals this, and if you people manipulate this, it leads to this. If we just get people on that line of thought and they can start seeing that, they're gonna be making more connections on their own. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you just have to help people make certain connections, and then they're gonna go, well, wait a minute, is that why? You can be like, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? like, just like you just have to get them to make those connections at first. And because like, yeah. like we were talking about earlier, the school system teaches us to not make connections. We have to go back and rewire our brain to see how everything is connected. You know, even just like um I'm about to go off topic just for that, but like I don't really like binaries, you know, I don't like this or that because I feel like it teaches our brain to think this or that. But we don't see things simultaneously. We don't see things intersectionally. We don't see things overlap. We're literally taught to go this over here, this over here. And that's why people have a hard time even just mentally making connections. Yeah. You can condition to not think that way. Exactly. Exactly. And no, just what you just said was so knowledgeable. And uh, it's crazy. Even when we talk about AOC and like the five, I don't, I don't know what they're called, but it's like AOC and then a couple other women of color politicians. And then we essentially, we stand them. That's a big problem with stand culture because we stand Obama and now we're standing AOC and all these women of color who are amazing politicians. And of course we should throw our, we should be very supportive, supportive of them, as seeing as how they are women of color, women of color, and seeing as how they have made it in politics. But at the same time, they are all able-bodied. They still, they are all able-bodied. They are still in a lucrative, you know, position. They're still in a position of power. Mm-hmm. And it's what you said about their be like. Are they talking about ableism? Not that I know nope. of. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> and that, that's literally, like, literally, and it's crazy because we're always, there's so much pressure to, like, be progressive and to be liberal. But part of me thinks that that's part of the problem. I think 
even the conservative liberal is becoming performative on both sides. And it's like, we really have to get to, because even for me, I still, well, if you're conservative, you're liberal, you're still doing this, you're still splitting, and you're still compartmentalizing. And we have to look beyond that, and we have to go, what is the actual issue here? How do we, you know, you have to be intersectional. And for, for politicians, for, for human rights activists, if I don't see ableism as part of your platform that you're trying to take down, you are not doing the work. And that's just the truth, because disability justice and dismantling ableism is not just about accommodating disabled people. It's about environmentalism. It's about looking how we destroy the environment and pollute the environment and how that affects people's bodies. And people are getting sick because of that. So we need to tackle environmentalism, you know what I mean, and climate change. It's about, you know, you have to constantly look at all these institutions and how they are affecting people's bodies, how they are either oppressing them or how they are making them sick. You know, the Flint, Michigan water crisis. You know what I'm saying? Like people drinking lead water and the stuff that they does to their bodies until they get cancer and they get sick. That's a part of disability justice. We're fighting for those people too. And if I don't see politicians making that connection, you're not doing the work. You know right. what I mean? If you're not, and I'm not, and here's the thing, nobody can be a superhero. That's a lot to take on. And that's a lot to constantly be processed. And that's the thing we have to, that's why I don't, that's why I think you have to humble yourself and realize that it's work. Be actively doing the work. Don't act like you're done. Don't act like you're an expert on any group because nobody can be an expert on any demographic, period. Because um, you're always going to learn something that you didn't see before. You're going to, you know, there's going to be some other person who says, wait a minute, I have these needs and you didn't mention that. And you're going to have to be like, oh yeah, you're right. Humble yourself. Bring that back. Amplify that person's voice. Amplify the people who need to be heard. You know what I mean? Nothing about us without us. Amazing. When you said amplify their voices, when we see on, even on TikTok, when we see these white creators who take advantage of um, ableist sentiments, who take advantage of ableist sentiments and use that, and then they go and, you know, speak on these issues performatively. And then TikTok rewards them. And it's mirrored even with what happened. Because I believe that social media is very powerful and very representative of all the systems in society. Yeah. So when we look about when we look at that across all the different institutions in our country, and we see that white people who honestly couldn't give a damn about able about um disabled people who honestly do not and um I don't know, well, uh, sorry, and during the Black Lives Matter movement, I remember all these large companies coming out with these commercials saying, we stand with the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh -huh. <laughs> As if they haven't been using discriminatory hiring practices. As if they haven't been relegating Black people to these docile um, labor markets. Uh -huh. As if it's 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 so hip and it's hypocritical to the point where it is dangerous it is literally dangerous and we need to start putting the pressure on these corporations i remember like during the black lives matter movement we were like we were looking to charlie to talk about it we were like when is charlie going to talk about what's happening in what's like when's charlie going to talk about what's happening with the black lives matter movement but it's like no you need to look to your actual 
Black um, humans, human rights activists. You need to look at the actual voices. Yep. And it's the same thing with um, when we're looking at ableism. We need to look at our actual disabled folks and we need, to, we need to look at the most marginalized of them. We need to look at the disabled folks of color. Yep. And then we need to look at the, we need to look at disabled folks with non-conforming um, gender identities as well. Because, and it just, it honestly, it makes me, it doesn't necessarily make me angry, but it's so obvious as to how to solve the problem. It goes back to what you were talking about with how it really is that easy <laughs> as the individual. <laughs> It really is. We've made it so unnecessarily just complex. And it's like, just shut up and listen to those who need to, like, that's literally all you need to do. You know, if you, if you it's crazy to me because even if you look at it from, I know that we live in a capitalist society, so we're not going to get out of it. But the most beneficial thing that any corporation can do is to accommodate everybody. My profit, like I don't. It's like even if you don't give a damn about these people, if there's money to be made, if everybody thrives, like I don't. That's why I don't get. I understand that now there's money to be made when people when everyone doesn't thrive because that's how you have mm-hmm. the hierarchy, and that's what they're worried about. They don't want to lose the power. Yeah. Now, if they accommodate, if everybody has an equal shot, then that's, that's why they don't want to do it. But even so. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I remember like last year um, when we had the George Floyd protests and um, James Skolak in Omaha, Nebraska, he was shot. And just when all these protesting was going on, all of these local businesses were all of a sudden like standing with the Black Lives Matter and like having like signs on their stores talking about justice and unity. And it's totally performative. It's just been completely performative. And like even... What's even crazier, I feel like with this pandemic, a lot of small businesses have hopped on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon so that they could get publicity and government funding. You know, I feel like there's mm-hmm. been a lot of, um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. just, like it's kind of the yeah. thing, just profit off of it. And it just becomes so, we're at the point where it's almost profitable to have, it's always been profitable, but it's almost now like the reason why racism is continuing to thrive is because it's profitable. Yes. That's why now we have end Asian hate. Like it's always going to be a perpetuating cycle. And then you have these white people who come in and say, I stand with the Asian community. I stand with the black community. And they keep getting rewarded for it. And it's it's almost as if white people who speak out on ableism or racism are getting more praise from Black and disabled people who are speaking out on racism and ableism. And I I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't know if it's because people are comfortable digesting the white narrative than they are digesting the truth. But... um, I'm a hey, I'm gonna say it because I I don't know if white narrative and truth can be put in the same category, mm-hmm. but that's why I'm having to say who's the white narrative and then who's the truth. Exactly. So, because the white narrative is, is always about the status quo. It's always about uplifting the status quo, period. Exactly. Exactly. That was the white narrative can never be the truth. It mm-hmm. And when you said about how it's 
somehow marketable. Somehow the black struggle is marketable. Oh yeah. Um, and then disability struggle is now marketable to everyone except the marginalized who are suffering. Yeah. We, especially within the black community, when you said that we have everything at our disposal to create our own institutions where we, where we uplift the marginalized, but we're just, we still praise these corporations. And, but that's racism in and of itself. These corporations who are, you know, at, who are acting, but they're doing it performatively, that's racism. No, but, but, and even when we think about how like our grandparents were alive and well during segregation, that was not that long ago. And then, but since, you know, there aren't lynchings happening as they were before. And since there, and since no one's going up to the, going up to us in the street and calling us the N-word as frequently as they were before, we say, okay, racism is done. But it's happening systematically. And every single time you turn on your TV and you see a commercial from uh, Macy's and they're saying, we stand with Black Lives Matter. It's like, that is racism. They, <laughs> they are using the black struggle to cover up all the shady, all the shady business that they're doing behind closed doors. And, you know, similarly to how they're doing that with racism, even they're doing the same thing with anti-Asian hate right now. They're saying we stand, we stand with the Asian community, but then let's look at your exclusionary practices. Let's look at your exclusionary practices then. And it's going to be the same thing. They're going to do the same thing with ableism. It's like, okay, well, let's look at your exclusionary practices and how you're still doing that right now in 2021, in this current day and age. Yeah. I, it's- It's crazy to think about how, because everything that you're saying, um, it makes you stop and think about, so racism has to be, so the way that black people in the black community have had to learn how to thrive and adapt so does racism, you know what I mean? It's like racism has to constantly be like a shapeshifter. So like, yeah, in the 1950s, you had lynchings and people were calling you the N-word to your face. It wouldn't happen, it wouldn't fly by today in today's climate. So racism has to become more graceful. It has, mm. to, it has to be refined. It has to be subtle. You know, it's like the more that technology advances, the does our hate. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost like it matches the way that society advances, so all of our isms to keep up with that. You know what I mean? And so it's just, it's becoming, so racism has become, it's become, it's just like our phones, you know? Cell phones back in the 90s used to be big, clunky, big, black, and now our cell phones are sleek, you can hide them. It's like racism mm -hmm. operates the same way. It used to be big and in your face, but it's learned to get sharper and faster and smaller and it's just and it sneaks up here and there. It's like because it has to maintain capitalism. It has to maintain white supremacy. All of these things have to change over time to maintain the status quo. And it's you know just like people get smarter or people adapt so do these ideologies. You know, it's it's just it's almost like this struggle and um I don't know what the solution is exactly, but um, actually no, because I feel like even though it changes over time, like I said, it's still not as complicated as we think it is. Yes. So even though racism and ableism have had to like change space and disguise itself, 
that's because it's so just as uncomplicated as it was before. And so it has to, it has to keep changing its face so that we think it, we don't recognize it. Exactly. Like, you know, yeah, you know what I mean? It's kind of like having a common code. It's like your body, you get the code frequently, but the virus has to change how it appears so that your body doesn't recognize it. But you still have to fight it the same way. So yeah. I feel like with, with racism and ableism, it's still the same thing like it was 100 years ago. It just looks different. We need to learn how to come up with the vaccine or we need to learn how to dismantle it so that when it does show up again, we can go, whoa, 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 we've done this. <laughs> We're not doing this again, you know what I mean? Like, we yeah. can capture it and we can nip it in the back. You know, these companies can realize this statement is racist before they put it out. You know yeah. what I mean? We have to, like, we have to get to that point where we're going, hey, hey. uh-uh. <laughs> no, exactly. When you said uh-huh. that, as technology advances, all of the isms do as well. That is truly what people need to realize mm. because even when we look at how black people are systematically, or like, um, yeah, black Americans are systematically put at a disadvantaged position, seeing as how we don't talk about disabled people as it is, we eliminate them from our minds mm-hmm. and then we don't think about where they are right now in society. Mm-hmm. And that's ab- that's ableism. That yep. is ableism. <laughs> You're doing what ableism wants you to do. It wants you to erase that from a so that then all of the horrible things that are done to disabled people can be done and nobody knows. I mean, I even think about like um when you get like so like when black people were experimented on, like the, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, mm-hmm. or like just the, when the public doesn't care about black people, then black bodies are disposable and can be used for whatever. When the public doesn't see disabled people, then disabled bodies can be disposed, they can be exploited, they can be experimented on, they can be discarded, like whatever. And that, that's why the media does such a good job of constructing a lens so that we only see this, but we don't see all this other stuff that's happening. We don't see immigrants who... Somebody made a point to me even recently just about the COVID-19 virus and how many deaths are not reported because those people were immigrants or because those were people of color. You know what I mean? When we don't, when we're not looking for those people, those people are dying. Things are happening to those people. You know what I mean? And um, that's what, that's kind of how the system wants us to be. It doesn't want us to look for those people. Exactly. Even when, you know, we, even when they're in our own family, like when we have a disabled person, when we have a disabled family member, we, you know, we see them at Thanksgiving, we see them at Christmas, but we don't think about their community. Nope. And a lot of times they get put in the, I'm glad you brought that up, because I think about that, how many times are the disabled one and the Black family just kind of the one that's sitting in the back? Or, you know, kind of the one that just told, go get this, go do that, go do that. You know, they're the helper or the, the comic relief of the family. When I think of me, um, I'm like, uh, I was always the one that's like, hey, you know, that person talking to you, you need to listen, go get this, go do that, go do that. It's like, I have to be like the helper because like whatever function that I have, you know what I mean? It's like, and I'm sure my family would say we didn't think of it that way, but it's, it's what they do subconsciously. You know, when you have black disabled family members, they're the ones who, 
have to help carry out the stuff. They're the ones who get made fun of at the expense of, because um, everyone else is insecure with this shit, but they make fun of the disabled ones to sort of reflect, to tick off them and to point out that family member. You know, I, I see it happen all the time. It's, it's just this ugly, it's like this internalized, it's like you make this person an outsider, even within your own family. And it, it's crazy that we've learned to do that from the larger society. Like we've learned to do that to our own family members. You know, if you have a black disabled person who can't move as fast as everyone else, it's like, well, you just sit back there and just not be in the way. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing. We are constantly trying to remove them from our mind, even if that's we don't think that that's what we're doing. That is what we're doing. It is what we're doing. That was, I love that you brought up when you said that when we make them an outsider in our family, and that's the first real society is that's the first real community. It's your family. And that's where we learn a lot of these things first. That's where a lot yeah. of our first experiences of whether it's abuse, um, we learn a lot of these things in our families first. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that is the very sad reality. And I think that's another thing that we don't talk about in our communities because I think there's so much pressure for Black people to, that white people don't know our dirty laundry. You know what I mean? And so we're not wanting to talk about it, but like, hey, there's a lot of ugly in the Black community that has to be healed before we can go anywhere. Exactly. Know? Before anyone can go anywhere. Like, um, we like our black our black politicians our black professionals our black elites they don't see how their own ableist sentiments are going to come right back and affect them because if you participate in the marginalization of your subpopulation mm-hmm. how is that going like that physically can that cannot help you at all that's going to come right back around and continue to perpetuate ableist stereotypes and since ableism is synonymous with whiteness, that's gonna come back, come right back around and hurt your own life, even if you are able-bodied. Yeah, and you're literally gonna take your own self out. Like, it's funny because as we get older, society says we don't really have much value. You know, like old people struggle like with elder abuse and um, you know, just old people or people of a certain age are constantly disregarded in our society. It's almost like um, when you are born, you have these these years. If you're an able-bodied person, these years, okay, you contribute to society. Once you get past this age, you know, nobody, you know, once you get past that age, you're not, you're not important anymore. So when, you're, when you are being an ableist yourself, so you may be a value to society while you have this, while you have this body and you have this age. But then once you get past a certain age, you're gonna realize, wait, I'm not, I'm not a valuable member of society anymore. No, you're not. Goodbye. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're, you're literally taking yourself out of the equation by perpetuating these notions and these stereotypes. You're talking like, well, I'm. It's kind of like poor whites thinking that they that they are. Um, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Okay, you know where I was going to go. You know exactly where I was going to go. <laughs> you know exactly where I was going to go with that. You know what I mean? Think about they 
are part of the ruling class. It's like you do realize that at some point you're you're just a part of the machine, right? Like you're not, you know, exactly. Yes, it's exactly the same thing. Those same aspirational politics are embedded in the Black community. And even when we look at COVID-19, elderly people are more likely to catch the virus and die from it. And who are most likely to die from COVID-19? That is Black people. They're three times more likely to die from it. When you brought up the poor whites, I, I literally got goosebumps because I... I condemn them for what they do, but we have to condemn those in our own community who do the exact same thing. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know what I mean? Always pitting against somebody else and to think, well, I'm at least right here. Um, You know, they're right here, but it's like you're literally doing what they want. They're literally thinking that you are privileged and that you, whatever, but there's somebody above you who's watching you just waiting for you to pick yourself up. You know what I mean? Like, you're literally just um, following their propaganda. Yes. And there's... And poor whites are suffering. They have disproportionately um, been economically deprived. Like, they have been systematically poor. Mm-hmm. And they are suffering. Even when we look at the Capitol riots, um, I think it's fair to assume that most of them were poor, or no. that they were definitely not wealthy. No. But they're fighting. They're fighting the fight of, of white supremacists who are actually hurting them. Ter- like they are the reason why they are poor. It's not. It's not black capitalists because we haven't had the money. And they don't. And that thing, they don't realize who they're fighting. And it's just like, it's shocking, but that's why the system is so brilliant and that's why it works because nobody can see who they're actually fighting or not fighting. And it's just, and that's why, you know, again, we have to keep going back and amplifying the, amplifying the voices of the marginalized. We have to, you know, it's just, wow. It's yes. a big unfolding thing. So there was, I knew right from the beginning of this interview that there's going to be so much to unpack because when you, even what you just said right now, this is why the system is so brilliant. It's so clever and sneaky. It is so, it is, it's terrible. And oh my God. And the craziest part is the system is working because we are collectively agreeing for it to work. Mm-hmm. It's working because we are like it's it, it, it's like this own little thing that's taking a life form, and it just knows how to get inside everybody's heads and how to turn people against each other, and it, it's crazy. But that's literally it, right there. And I feel like if you can grasp that, you can start doing the work of going, okay, yeah, you know, if you if you can get that, it really puts you in this place. I'm having to really stop and really look closely at everything. I'm having to stop and think about what's being said to you, having to stop and think about how you're putting out your message. Um, and really just when you look outside at society, just understanding how everything is functioning and how um, how it's all working together. Like we, like we don't, it's like its own ecosystem. Um, like an ecosystem of politics and ideas just working together. Exactly. And I think you definitely, I remember I said like, 
where does the conversation start earlier? And then you dropped all of that amazing knowledge. And even what you just said right now, it starts with amplifying the voices of the most marginalized. It starts with you. It starts with, and again, that's why when I saw your platform, it's like, thank God, thank God he has a platform. Thank God people are, you should have, your content is so articulate and so it is I've honestly even just from I didn't I don't even think I fully watched that video about black um about how black disabled people are erased from history all I saw was like black disabled um I saw like the title of it and I before I clicked on the video I already saw my perspective changing I already thought back <laughs> my first African-American studies class I said we did not learn a damn thing about when we learned, we learned so much about the transatlantic safe trade, but we didn't learn about the black disabled folks on there. Even in our whole lesson on slavery, it's not necessarily like the professors. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that there definitely wow. is. A- <laughs> and again, again, we don't want to put our, we don't want to put the pressure on our black professionals and on, and on our black teachers and on our black you know principles and everything but we have to we have to say it's 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 society has made it an uncomfortable topic and they want us to be uncomfortable but it starts with amplifying the voices of those who are marginalized it starts with reading theories written by black disabled folks that's the only way that we can truly seek liberation because if we keep um it's like an infection. Like you have an infection on your leg or something and you keep ignoring it, you keep ignoring it. And then it's, it spreads your entire leg and it spreads your entire body. If we keep ignoring these truly amazing people, people, we need to unlearn all of these stereotypes. Just speaking as an able-bodied person, I need to learn all of these terrible, just everything that I've been conditioned to believe that ableism equals, you know, like undesirability or it's something that, you know, it's like it's something that represents our own innate mortality no absolutely not it starts with listening to you and all of your just your insane knowledge and how if and how we like just me personally the fact that it's taken this long it's honestly it's it's crazy it's dangerous and people go their entire lives without knowing anything about it Absolutely. Well, I think that that's very common for so many people because, like, just even like the responses I've gotten on my videos alone, people have been like, wow, I really didn't realize ableism was so prevalent like this. And that's the thing, that's the point. You want to post it. And I think for anybody who's just now realizing this or going, wow, I have so much I need to unlearn, that's a good thing to realize that you can keep learning and unlearning these things. Like, that's what this is all about, you know? Like, for me, especially, like, there's been a lot of, I've had a lot of ableist ideas that I've just carried with me throughout my life and a lot of negative viewpoints of disabled people because that's what, you, that's how you're supposed to be taught, you know? And to really stop and go, wow, this sucks. And like, part of you is almost kind of mad at yourself, but I think you have to forgive yourself. You know, you have to, go, yeah, okay, this is not my fault. Like, I was taught like this. My lens looked like this. So now I have an opportunity to step back and go, okay, I want to unlearn it. I want to be better. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know? And for people who, um, I feel like sometimes people feel concerned with, like, they're supposed to already know 
have to be an ally or have to accommodate you and then they get mad and defensive. It's like, no, like nobody's blaming you for not knowing. They're blaming you if you do know now and you're choosing to just, you know, be ignorant and continue mm-hmm. to be the problem. But I think right now, I just want more able-bodied people, hearing people, whatever, to just know, like, there's no shame in being able-bodied and there's no, like, but we need everyone to come together and realize that this is a problem. You know? Right. You know, literally all we're trying to do. I just, I have to thank you again for this interview because <laughs> I, I have learned... I have learned so much. Even, I just, I don't even know where to start. I've learned so much. Are the conversations that I wish I would have in school? These are the conversations that I wish, even in grade school, like I just felt like I was always just waiting for like, when can I really talk about this stuff? You know what I mean? Like it's just been like staying inside of me and it just feels like, but this is what education should be about, right? And it's just, Unfortunately, the way it's set up now, no. And so we have to create new ways of educating. Like these conversations, they're like, they are my life. Um, they're mine too. They are mine too, 100%. I, and it, this is honestly just the beginning because I already have so many new ideas just right now. Um, Great. I'm, so much is happening up here. <laughs> I oh my god I truly hope that more and more people flock to your TikTok channel and then of course that you will be able to create something bigger for yourself and for your art especially um that's another that's definitely another thing that society does say that our artists you know it's just like our their interest it's so dangerous our artists are literally the backbone of society whether we want to confront that or not it it is it is the truth and i yes 100 percent. i i truly i need that to happen for you i truly need your success put that energy out into the universe (laughs) and it will happen (laughs) (laughs) we do that's another thing with black with black professionals we say no we have they marginalize the arts department but they don't see how that's affecting them again when we keep saying no we have to keep aspiring and aspiring and aspiring that is simply not how life is supposed to be lived and if you are contributing to that you are affecting so many more people than you could ever possibly imagine so when we turn to Mr. Barack Obama for what we're supposed to aspire to it is so dangerous that narrative is so dangerous in my family like my family has a pretty big history, like, with the city that I live in. So, like, people know of my family, and there's always been so much pressure for everyone, like, all the young people in my family to be to do really well in school. And just, like, and it's crazy, like, I talk with my cousins, and we look back on how we were brought up. And just, like, the intense amount of pressure, like, to aspire to be like these other figures. Um, my cousin and I, we're really close now. And we're, we're both kind of like the black sheep of our family because we just kind of do our own things. And we're so much, we're trying to break a lot of our generational trauma and the stuff that we've learned in our family. But um, but we just realized that like, it almost kind of comes out of, now I feel like I lost my train of thought. I was going somewhere with that. Yeah. 
And now I kind of like run up. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. No, yeah, we were talking about um, like how like aspirational politics and how we're all yeah. talking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the aspirational politics. Yeah, like we were talking about just like how growing up, our parents were always very like strict and like very expecting us to you know to get good grades in school and to and to succeed and to go to college. But I feel like so much of my time and energy was I don't want to say wasted, but because I had invested in that, that's why it's taken me so long to get to this point now where I'm like, wait a minute, I need to do this my way. I need to you know I need to. <laughs> the way that my body mind works, the way that my healing works, the, everything about me doesn't fit the standardized mode of aspirational politics and whiteness <laughs> all of that, you know what I mean? So I have to do it my way. Exactly. And people, like the Black elites, have to stop using that aspirational politics because what it does is say that there's only one way to do it. And, and they are literally contributing to monoculture. And that's not how that's not how we do this. Exactly. Exactly. 100 percent And then we start, and that's when you said that um not necessarily that your time was wasted, but that we that you know, even with my life too, that that in, that emphasis on good grades and people hear that and they're like well you know you should but they don't understand the psychological effects of that and how it literally conditions you to be this robot who just goes you know and it's so terrible and we need to really push our black youth it really starts with the black youth with because in our point because what I'm trying to say is like we still have I want to say like when we're still kind of dependent, like in terms of when we look at Gen Z and our black youth in terms of Gen Z, like your parents are still the ones providing for you and they're probably going to pay for your college and just that and everything like that. So you kind of have the economic aspects kind of covered. So yeah. you can only really go up and you can only really develop your own personhood. I mean, if you want to, you can pursue your traditional career, but you're just, you know, getting rich and aspiring does not does not equate to liberation. So that's why our Black youth is so important when, you know, like hold on to your dependence as long as you can. But then you also have to develop your own personhood that is completely outside of that. And that's why I also love and hate Gen Z because we're this, because it's the same generation that's, you know, putting, that's allowing for white creators and for white corporations to steal our narrative. You know what I mean? Like, even when you look at like cancel culture and things like that, and we're canceling white creators because they said the N word and everything like that. Well, why were we standing them in the first place? Why weren't we looking to our black creators? And then we're ca we're canceling corporations. It's it's why were we why weren't we looking at black businesses? Yeah. You know what I mean? So we we have to completely just exactly everything that you were saying. Aspirational politics does not work. I mean, I do see why it might have been used as a method as a tool of survival, but yeah. right. But we have so much. It's time to it's it, it can only work for so long you know what i mean it we can only work for so long we have to redefine what success and survival looks like and it has to be away from because after it after politics like it like you've started literally tied to whiteness elitism 
monoculture and it just it worked against the black experience because mm-hmm. that's not that's literally not what the black experience is. Um, it just um, I don't think you can take the black narrative, the black experience, black wisdom, black identity, and try to make it. Um, you can't make it one model to aspire to. It's too diverse, you know what I mean? It's too, too diverse and it's about connectivity. It's not about hierarchy, it's about connectivity. Um, that's why I think it's so different from black culture and white culture. White culture is very much about hierarchy. It's about getting to the top. Black culture is about uplifting the entire group. You know? mm-hmm. Exactly. This was a good conversation. <laughs> I am truly speechless. I, because <laughs> with TikTok, you can't say all of this in 15 seconds. You know what I mean? So you definitely, I was expecting a lot, but I, you, I'm truly astounded. <laughs> because there's so much to think about. There's so much to think about. So th- like just a million thanks. <laughs> like I'm a lot some people are like you can be a little too mad I'm like I know it's a lot you know it's a lot <laughs> but you know that's uh it's, it's all there so you know just as bit by bit you know um I like to look at my knowledge like you can just spill it out on a canvas and go okay nah I'm gonna work with this for a little bit you know <laughs> <laughs> No, this was I again a million things because there's there I like just there's so much. And especially again, I just have to re-emphasize amplifying the voices of the marginalized and how we simply I, I simply cannot if like if I wanted to write an article about um, black disabled people, it's like okay, but why not actually hear from a black disabled person? Why not hear about their experiences? And that's just the beginning. We have to replicate that throughout all of our institutions. So that's why I simply I cannot thank you enough for staying down with me today. Thank you. I appreciate that. This is I'm really thinking like. Just the work that we're doing here, like it's gonna bring so many people together, and it's just it's just the start of it, you know. Like we are starting, some we're starting, and just not even with us, but just with so many black educators, creatives. Like we we're changing things, you know. Mm-hmm. We're changing things. So I'm I'm all here for it. I am I am excited. Like let's do this. I'm like one of my videos. I'm like let's do this. You know, we got to, we got a lot of work to do. Let's do it. Right. Okay. Well, again, a million thanks. A million thanks. I will be emailing you a lot of questions just for background info. Yes, yes. Again, thank you so much. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you. Bye.